Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. So we're talking today about Rainbow's End by Werner. Actually, I've never heard Werner Vinge's name pronounced, but I believe it's pronounced Vinge, not Vinge. But the reason is I've looked at sort of phonetic spellings of it, and I believe it's Werner Vinge. Okay, so we're talking about Werner Vinge's Rainbow's End, and it was the winner of the Hugo Award, and we're sort of, this is our second time with it, and you are going to be bringing in passages. I have passages ready to rock if you don't, but I, uh, but we were going to be bringing in passages and making connections with politics. So I have a few myself that I'd like to talk about, but I want to start with some of yours. So what do we have? Go ahead. All right. So this is when Robert is looking up JITT. Oh, right. Do you know? Do you have a page? Uh, no, I don't. I used um, okay. an online source. Okay. Sorry. Okay, so on the drive home, Robert looked up JITT. There were millions of hits in medicine and military affairs and drug enforcement. He picked up he picked the global security summary off the top of respected contrarian sources. JITT, which stands for just in time training, is a treatment that combines addressing therapy and intense data exposure, capable of installing large skill sets at less than 100 hours. Most famous for his tragic use in the Sino-American conflict when 100,000 U.S. military recruits were trained in Mandarin, Cantonese, and a list of specialties that Robert had never heard of. In less than 90 days, the Americans had made up their military language gap. But then there were problems. Um, this talent pool was decisive in ground operations. However, the human price of the procedure was apparent even before the end of the war. And Robert's reading the, side, the sections on side effects now. Learning a language or a career specialty changes a person. Cram in such skills willy-nilly, and you distort the underlying personality. Very few JITTs suffered no side effects. In rare cases, such people could undertake a second hit, even a third, before the damage caught up with them. The rejection process was a kind of internal war between the new viewpoints and the old, manifesting as seizures and altered mental states. Often the JITT was stuck in some diminished form of his or her new skill set. And after the war, there was a legacy of disabled veterans and continued abuse by foolish students everywhere. Um, so um, I linked that to an article that um, came out a few weeks ago. It's called The Latest Do-It-Yourself Craze Brain Hacking. Home experimenters are building rigs to send currents through their heads. There's a do-it-yourself do community that sprung up around a technology called transcranial direct current stimulation, TDCS for short. This non-invasive way to jolt brain cells is being studied in labs and clinics for its potential to reveal how our brains function, and perhaps to augment abilities or treat disorders. Unlike most other brain tweaking technologies, TDCS doesn't require expensive equipment. All it takes is a 9-volt battery, some, some simple circuits, and a couple of electrodes. Consequently, it didn't take long for so-called biohackers to band together and come up with schematics. 
Many self-experimenters got interested because of research studies that have shown TD TDCS to have a variety of fascinating effects, depending on electrode location and the amount of stimulation. Faster learning, better math skills, improved memory, more creativity, all these enhancements have been observed in one study or another. One user's first plan was to use TDCS to learn German, but when he realized that language learning would still be a huge time commitment, he shifted his focus and decided to test the technologies decided to test the technology's cognitive effects with as much scientific rigor as one amateur could pull off. Granted, that's not all that much. There's no easy way to, to control for the, for the placebo effect. But now the community is taking a turn from enhancing healthy people to helping the sick. With the word of TDCS approaching, more people are trying to trying it to treat to, sorry, more people are trying to are trying it to treat disorders such as depression, ADHD, and chronic pain. Only minor side effects have been reported in the do-it-yourself community, such as skin irritation, flashes of lice, and headaches. But some say that at-home experimenters shouldn't assume TDCS is risk-free, especially if they're using big rigs they built themselves. It's different if you made something that connects to your head and the battery blows out. And also, um, these kits are unregulated by the FDA. So um, it's a very um, unresearched subject that has some promising uh, applications. Right so now. what are your thoughts about it? So my thoughts about it is that I think that the brain is something that is still very largely under, um, not understood. Like, for example, the left and right brain phenomenon, that like people are left-brained or right-brained, they're more creative, they're like more suited towards creativity or more suited towards logic. Turns out that's not true. And that was like one of the main things that people like know about brain things. So like when people are experimenting on their own brains using like electrical circuits and things like that to jolt their brain to try to make it to try to make themselves like smarter or like more creative and things like that, I think that this is a pretty dangerous route that should be looked into more for its side effects. What do other people think about this particular thing? Go ahead. <clears throat> Uh, it's really, it blows my mind that people will test that electrical current on their own mind because you have to think if it gives you great things in the beginning, there has to be some long-term uh, side effect that will eventually come back around to uh, get you. Mm -hmm. Go ahead, Alex. Well, it's also um, even just a, like a less dangerous version of that. There's all these drinks right now that are supposed to help stimulate your mind or like they're called like neuro sleep or neuro something. You drink them and they're kind of like soda and they help you learn or they help you sleep. Um, so just kind of the things that people are willing to go through right now and how much experimentation right now is being devoted to improving your mind. Um, I think that's so interesting that we've been on this planet like for so long that people are still trying to improve the mind. Like obviously the human mind is already so advanced, but the fact that there's more that it could be, I think is pretty cool. Yeah. What else? That's good. What? Well, all three of you have commented that you're sort of surprised that it's happening. But in the novel, it's <coughs> past tense. It happened. And it's full-fledged. And it causes severe side effects, seizures and things like that, when it's done repeatedly especially. JITD, just in time. By the way, the 
just in time concept is a is a concept that's been around in programming for a long time. It was often used for uh, Java programming when see, see Java is a language that has to go through a machine before it gets parsed out the machine language it has to go through a um, something like an interpreter but it's, people write Java in any for any machine they want it's the same Java language but then it goes through a box and not a physical box a program box that interprets that program to language that the computer would understand and that avoids having to write the program over again for every operating system so if you're dealing with Mac OS or if you're dealing Apple OS or if you're dealing with Windows or if you're dealing with Linux it doesn't matter what operating system because all you need is this box and again I'm, I'm just using the box as a metaphor for the part of the program that interprets the Java code into the machine language and so JIT is just-in-time programming which is it reduces the latency and it gets it to the point where it's almost as fast as if it's written directly for that operating system. Okay? So it's a way, it means speeding it up. It means speeding it up. Because if you, if you have a clunky box and you're writing a program in one language and it's got to go through an interpreter box before it goes out to the machine, you have the potential for having it all slow down. Okay, so the idea of just in time, it means speeding up the programming so it's almost as fast as if you wrote it in C++ for that particular operating system and there's no box, no interpreter that has to, you know, change it from your program to the machine language code. So the idea of just in time training is that you're speeding up the the operationalization, the time that you can when you when you learn something and when you actually can use utilize it. So it's a it's got that it's got the concept of programming plus the concept of speeding it up. Okay, so it's got those two things. And what we really want to do is is when regarding to so the the idea with that strikes me is all three of you have been sort of surprised at how people are willing to put electrodes on their brain and shock their brain and you are raising also sort of different methods that people are doing that so it's not just of electrodes to the brain that people are trying to get access into the brain to sort of rewire it. But people do it with light stimulus. And in fact, certain light stimulus, flashing lights going into the brain, into the eyes, it goes directly into the optical nerve, can cause seizures. Same thing we have with auditory stuff. People use certain frequencies on either ear, producing what they call a beat frequency. Listen up, everybody. You have something called a beat frequency. A beat frequency is where you have one frequency that's next to another frequency and they interfere with the another. 
to produce another frequency. For example, if you use a C and a B on the keyboard and you hit them both together, you'll get something that sounds like a wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah. That wah-wah-wah-wah-wah-wah is actually called the beat frequency where the peaks and the troughs are interfering with one another. So you have the, the peak of one wave, the C, interfering with the trough or hitting the trough of the B and they cancel each other out because they're slightly out of sync. So for that beat frequency to actually sort of work, the frequencies have to be somewhat close to each other. So you you still get what they call destructive and constructive interference between the waves if you have a, you know middle C and then the highest B on the keyboard, but you don't notice it very much because the frequencies are so out of so far away from each other. But when they get really close, you really notice it. So those beat frequencies. So they have found if you have different tones in the different ears, what you actually get is uh, the potential for seizures. You have to be very careful which tones go in which ears. Certain combinations, the person has an epileptic fit. So, you know, these... But people are trying it because they're, they're trying to... They're desperate for trying to sort of fiddle with the brain. Go ahead. There's actually... Um, <coughs> these things on YouTube, it's like uh, exactly what you were talking about, like audio, yeah. um, things like that. They're called binaural beats. Yeah, exactly, the they're called binaural beats. beats. Yeah. yeah, there's like some certain frequencies that have actually um, been reported to like increase your focus or your studying and things like that. I mean, your you know, like concentration. I yeah. actually use the, that for The my issue studies. is though that some have been well tested and are safe. Yeah, yeah, there's like, it's not like but a very well researched yeah, but subject. You have to sort of know what you're doing when you're doing that. You go ahead. Uh, there was this um, TV, there was this TV show in the UK called uh, Darren Brown. I think I've spoken about him before, and um, he's basically does like mind control and like yeah. he does experiments with like um, like brainwashing and stuff. Anyway, he did this one where he uh, he like advertised it before, but it was basically he just played this this sound on television. And uh, it was supposed to like hypnotize people and make them like sit in their seats so they couldn't stand up. Yeah. So people like videoed themselves watching the the clip and like worked for some people. It didn't work for others. It's just like really cool to see how like a sound could make you like not be able to move. Yeah. Part of that is the element of hypnosis, which is demonstrated to be real, but no one really fully understands it. And uh, part of it is literally, yeah use of these things. Okay, so but what I'd like to bring everyone's attention to, listen up here, don't all stare at the screens, what I'd like to bring everybody's attention to is you're talking about, you know, it's crazy how people would do this, but the fact is people are willing to do it and they're willing to do it in huge numbers and the desperation. So what does this tell about the book? <coughs> it has some truth behind it. It has some truth behind it that people would actually be willing to put themselves through that and do that. I'd like you to say it a little bit more assertively. Not just there has some truth behind it. It's completely possible. Or it is possible. Say it more assertively, even than that. Stick your neck out. Has some truth behind it. It's possible. It actually it happens in the book, so it's it's happening today. No, it's not happening the way it's happening in the book today. 
science fiction is is prophecy. So how would you make the most bold statement you could, seeing that people are obviously willing to try it, put up electrodes to their brains, even? So JITT, what are you going to say about it? I was going to say that's in our future, if that's what the book is saying. Yeah, how would you say it in a short sentence, a short phrase, that'll hit home? What occurs in the book will happen in our future, without question. Go ahead. It's inevitable? Very close. It's inevitable. That's good. But there's two things wrong with that. You ended it with what? A question. A question. And the other thing is, it's inevitable. That would have almost been okay, but you could have... Inevitable. That's got five syllables. That's got five. Inevitable. Five syllables to it. Uh, you could have made it something. The fewer syllables, the fewer words, things hit home. Who wants to try? You're getting close. I would have smiled and said, that's cool if you said, it's inevitable. But you said, it's inevitable? <laughs> so, okay, so we fixed the question mark. Let's fix the number of syllables. It's the future. That's sort of vague and nebulous. Now, there's no one way to say it. Go ahead, Max. Oh, sorry, no, that wasn't. Okay, go ahead. It's destined. It's destined. That sounds sort of, well, cutesy. I'm thinking of something blunt. You see, if you want to say something and you want to say this science fiction is prophetic, it's gonna, it's going to, it's going to happen. What's that? Happen. <laughs> you can't get any simpler than a two-syllable word. It's going to happen. Happen. Meaning, when you start writing, think about the most blunt ways you can say some things. Get your messages to. To, you know, hit home and hit home hard. So rather than say, it's possible, did you get the idea? Say, it's going to happen. And the reality is, people are willing to put these 9-volt batteries up to their brains right now. And we're already starting to figure out how to use digital means for interacting with the brain. It's going to happen. So JITT is something that's in the future. Just-in-time training where you learn things really fast. And there's going to be risks associated with it. You're going to be... The idea of seizures and other things are a real possibility. Okay? All right. Now, I see some people with their either staring at the computers or typing. Make sure you're not surfing the net or anything like that, okay? Just make sure it's, you're focusing on the class, no matter what. You've got the novel in front of you on there and you're reading a passage you're going to read, that's okay. But Scouts Honor, you've got to not do anything that's not related to class if that computer's open. Okay? Okay, go ahead. So you were going to say something. No, I was just saying I was taking notes on my computer. Oh, yeah. yeah that's okay. If you're doing that, that's fine. That's fine. All right. So, um, what's another passage? Go ahead. Okay. So, it's in... No, no you're, you're way over there and the mic's over here, so speak it's up. in chapter 8 on page... Give us a page. 80, page 82. What's that? 82. 82. 
It's the instant where Juan leech meets Jew. Okay. Juan leaned forward and tried to ignore the stare. He captured about three seconds of the contraption's motion, enough to identify stationary points and dimensions. There was an old mechanics program that came in handy for medieval gadget games. He fed the description into it. The results were easy to interpret. You just got to make that lever a quarter inch longer. He poked a finger at a tiny spar. I know. Juan looked back at him. But you're not where. How did you figure that out? Zhu shrugged. Zhu shrugged. A medical gift. That's pretty neat, Juan said uncertainly. For what? To do what any child can do already? So the passage is reflecting Zhu's frustration with the fact that you know these children are wearing, meaning they're wearing the lenses that allow them to you know receive information, communicate information. Okay. And because of that, Juan is able to figure things out that it took Zhu a very long time uh, to be able to see intuitively without having to wear um, the technology. So then this was an article from uh, January this year. Health experts say excessive amounts of time spent on smartphones and tablets can be addictive and affect childhood development. Smartphones, tablets, and laptops have made life easier for many Australians, but health experts are it's an Australian news network. Um, but health experts are now monitoring and trying to limit exposure from the age from age two onwards. Jazz musician Singe Clark says that screen addiction derailed his passion for music. At the point where it was worst, I didn't realize how much it was controlling my life. Instead of sitting down and doing an hour or two of solid practice, it would be interspersed with checking my phone. It wasn't just with music, it was with reading or anything. It's a massive addiction. So the link here is the tone with which Juan said, but you're not wearing, how did you figure that out? It implies that you know, there is the idea of intuitive skill has become antiquated because an entire, you know, all, the new generations are living through their phones. And they can't derive... Uh, joy or intellectual curiosity without the use of some sort of electronic. So the introduction of all these new electronic devices, and I touched on this at the end of last class, is fundamentally altering the way that we are experiencing the world. Interesting. Okay, what is, who has a thought about that particular passage and, and, and concept? Now, how would this apply in a political sense? that would have sort of a main, sort of wide-angle implication to our society. for a political gain. So if, say, some politician wants to punish somebody, maybe they could delete the communication system, leaving everybody in the dark without their technology. So there's a po possibility of sabotage. That's a possibility. Go ahead. Um, so I'm going to link this to um, information data mining, where... So our generation and future generations are going to spend more and more time on the Internet, browsing, surfing, doing things because that's the norm. But when you browse the Internet and when you look up things that are interested in, to you, you tell the Internet what you're interested in. And companies are interested in that stuff, your own information, where they pay off corporations like 
Facebook and Microsoft, it's been revealed that they sell it, that they sell like users' information to other corporations for money. And as the as our, as the pe as the people in general spend more and more time integrated into the web, I believe that corporations will have more of a hold on the world because they have more of a hold on the people. That's interesting. Well, you know, sort of... Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. My, my, my problem is that the connection I was trying to make does not have to do with the dangers of technology as a map, you know, just uh, inherent to the technology itself. It's more the danger of the fact that we as a society are beginning to rely on technology in order to experience the world. So it's sort of a matter of cultural evolution uh, as opposed to biological evolution. Um, in that, you know, gr growing up, I'm sure your generation, even some of our generations, we didn't have, you know, smartphones or uh, or these sort of advanced gaming systems and stuff that could render. But you uh, don't have to go back very far to be exactly, that. Exactly. Yeah. That you know, they couldn't render these, you know, creative imaginescapes for us. We did it, you know, in our own head. We had sort of active imaginations, and we invented our own fun. And as a result, our generation, all the generations before us. You know, we're able to, you know, had experience by the time we got to the age where we were interacting in the real world to come up with creative ideas, and that made, you know, that makes better leaders, it makes better innovators, it makes better legislators. The danger here is that the more reliant we become on technology to create creativity for us, the less we will be able to create novel ideas, the less innovative society will become, the less creative society will become. It's oh, interesting, etc. If I were to take your <coughs> whole proposition with this passage, which I think is a fascinating passage, and draw two conclusions out of it. It would be the motivation, the tension that develops between Robert and Juan, showing the draw for wanting to do this. Just like we were talking before about the draw for enhancement, there's also the draw for wanting to be able to be better in class without wearing the the without wearing the equivalent in the science fiction world of say Google Glass, uh, Robert was able to figure out that some piece needed to be a little bit longer. So other people would look at that and say, but I could get it with that wearing, with the wearing of these technological enhancements. I could get it. So there's gonna be a draw to it that's gonna be pulling people into the technological sort of interface. And with that draw, you get, once you're drawn into the interface, that wide-scale, broad society draw for everybody to get into it, you become dependent on it. And with that dependency becomes a vulnerability. And with that vulnerability becomes the possible loss of your intuitions. Now, the, the other thing, and I'll, we'll get to it in a second, if you talk about the... The difference between doing something intuitively and doing something because you learned how to do it. Think of your driving. Everyone here has a driver's license. When you're driving down the street, your brain is making an enormous number of calculations. You, for you not to bump into the curb, other cars, people, you're actually speeding down there 60 miles an hour. You're making an enormous number. The amount of calculations going on in the brain is just unbelievable for you to drive a car. I mean, the amount of things that are happening, adjustments that you're making to the gas pedal, to the brakes, to the micro-movements and the steering wheel, the whole thing. 
So, that's all being done on an intuitive level. You're not, like, thinking about it. In terms of politics, look at it this way. Look at the difference between John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. John Kennedy was a natural, intuitive charismatic, meaning he knew how to project out that image that captured the media's attention to have that Camelot type of look between him and his wife that just was riveting. He didn't have to learn how to do that. He did it successfully. Ronald Reagan, on the other hand, was a good B-grade actor in Hollywood, former president of Screen Actors Guild and governor. He didn't have the intuitive capabilities that Kennedy had, but he had the learned capabilities, meaning he studied how that was supposed to be done. He, went, he was in the school of Hollywood. And when he started to run for president, he brought in what they called the Tuesday team, which uh, included people like uh, uh, Roy Travisano, who was the first person to create a singing animal on TV. It was a meow mix singing cat. Meow, 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 where they saw the mouth go up and down. When you see little babies talk on television and animals talk on television, well, it was Roy Travisano who started all of that. Well, he was in the so-called Tuesday team that was brought in by Ronald Reagan. The Hollywood people, he brought them in. And Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was an outstanding president, in my view. But he didn't have a chance against Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan came in with media hyperpower that you just couldn't. I mean, his campaigns were works of art, but they were not intuitive. The guys knew what they were doing. And they set it up exactly the way they're supposed to be set up. Now, Kennedy, on the other hand, he got the exact same effects. But no one taught Kennedy how to do it. You get the idea that between intuitions? Now, when you compare yourself to driving a car, you're doing it all intuitively. You're making these judgments. Imagine having the skills of driving a car, but running a presidential campaign. You're a Kennedy. All coming out intuitively. And all of that's lost when you start relying on these other sources. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be good. What if you don't think your intuitions are really up to it to be a Kennedy? What is the temptations? The enhancements. The wearing. I can be a Kennedy. I just have to wear the Google Glass. I just have to wear the, I have to do the wearing. I just have to have the enhancements. I just have to do the brain enhancements. The temptation is enormous. Who doesn't want to be a Kennedy? And I'm not talking male or female. I'm just talking, you know, intuitive, charismatic, able to move the world type person. I mean, it's a powerful draw. That would indicate that the society is going to be inevitably drawn to the digital realm. And that would also mean that your capabilities with these laptops and smartphones is going to be dinosaur stuff in four years. It's amazing <coughs> because it, the, the economic draw is going to be incredible. Go ahead. I just want to make a comment about um, the growing dependence and vulnerability we have towards technology. Yeah. Um, I mean, since I mean a Google search is now just like grabbing your phone away, uh, just grabbing your phone, um, like the need to like memorize things or know things by heart, you, it's not really, you don't really have to anymore. You can just Google search it. You can find the basic information without having yeah. memorized it. Yeah. And I mean, if all the information is stored online, if you don't have, if you don't have your phone, then you don't, 
and you have no none of that information anymore. Like you you have none of the I don't know what the word is for but what I'm looking for. Like none of the ability. It's all it's all on the device. Like when you have when you don't need to memorize it. If you no longer have that device, you don't have any of Good knowledge. example. Do you know how many people here, we'll get to everybody, how many people here know Bill Moyers? It's a little dated for you. He's still around, though. He was a political news person, uh, news reporter and commentator. And he still does occasional PBS-type stuff. Well, Bill Moyer is of, the, is of the old school, and when you see him doing a presentation, very often he's not using any teleprompter stuff at all. He's just talking, and he's talking into the lens, he's talking into the mic, he's looking down. He's, you can tell because he's not looking at a teleprompter. That's that trained capability to be able to talk. And he'll keep on talking for a long time, and he's not reading it. But it's that capability that people try to get instantly by having a teleprompter. So teleprompters, you're you're reading it, but you're trying to look natural when you're reading it, but you're looking right into the camera and you're following a script along with doing that. I teach here at Emory a course in guerrilla political videography, and part of that course is how to use a teleprompter, and we convert your laptops into teleprompters with some free software, and you literally learn how to do it, and the skill for getting that so it looks sort of natural. So we're trying to use technological means to mimic, you know, people who are natural intuitives, uh, the people who relied on their own skills to be able to do this, the Bill Moyer types, which basically means that you take the teleprompter away from some people and they just fall apart. <laughs> That's very interesting. Okay, I think Max, you had your hand. Yes, yeah, the, the greatest example of, of the effect I'm talking about is the antiquity of cursive in schools. You know, when, when I was in middle school, I'm sure when you guys were in middle school as well, cursive was a mandatory part yeah. of, of the English curriculum. We all had to learn cursive. And that's because from the founding era on, it, written work and written communication was the primary form of pro professional communication. And so it was considered a necessary skill. But then the more school and uh, and professional the professional world began relying on digital communication, written communication became antiquated, and with it, so did the necessity to learn cursive handwriting. So this isn't as theoretical as it seems. We watched it happen. It's, you know, cursive has been phased out of all nationwide English curriculums. In fact, if you, uh, if you want to find good handwriting, talk to an art student, because they, have, they work a lot on how to do these things, or find somebody who's older, like very older, like 80. <laughs> <laughs> and they'll they'll show you what they learn. Yeah, it's 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 a lost it's a lost art. It's a lost art. Yeah, it's a good point. Go ahead. And then you had your hand raised too. Go ahead. Um, <clears throat> so like, this is an idea I got like a, a while ago when you were talking about like um, how we're like becoming dependent on technology and like um, I thought that like what it popped into my head. Um, I saw a picture, strangely enough, on the internet of like. Um, there was it compared a photograph of people on a bus. There was like a full bus of people, like all looking at their phones, and none of them were like looking at each other or interacting mm -hmm. or anything like that. And then there was another picture next to it of like it was like 1930s, 1940s on this bus, and everyone was looking at a newspaper, and no one was looking at each other, like no one was interacting with each other, like and it was just like it was like the same thing, and like I, it made me think about how like our dependence on technology, it's like it's not a new thing at all. It's just like 
like the dependence just like adapts as technology adapts, and mm-hmm. it's not it's not a new idea that like oh no these, yeah, the, the these humans adapt are remarkably quickly yeah. to like there's always there's always been a, an obstacle between like um, our creativity and like that's like stopped us from mm-hmm. being social or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just the fact that that obstacle is changing. Yep. Yep. Alex? Um, I was going to mention another example, which is GPSs. Um, when I drive, or when I drive with my friends, we don't use a GPS. I mean, we have to use a GPS um, to get where we're going, whereas my parents know where they're going. They've kind of learned the area around them. And I've been living in my house as long as my parents have, um, but they kind of know the way around just because they're not used to being able to rely on GPS. Um, and I know it seems kind of like trivial, okay, you you know, you know your way around, but there's also skills that are learned, like if, like, you know, trying to figure out how to get yourself unlost and things like that. I would immediately go to a GPS, whereas they have like backtracking, where they pay more attention to where they're driving in case they have to drive there again. Um, it kind of enables you to be like oblivious to where you're driving and not have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Jay. Yeah, when I use the when I like drive around like my hometown, Bellevue. Um, in Washington, I just use a GPS everywhere. I have zero idea where I'm going. I just look at my phone, like, and it just tells me the directions, and I get there, and like, and, like, from me starting out to me getting there, I don't remember how I got there at all. Actually, I was talking to a relative, and he said, uh, how are you going to get to this place? I was planning on going to some art venue that I was going to go to. And I said, uh, well, I'm just going to look at the map and memorize how to go and go. And he looked at me and he said, oh, you're doing it traditional. <laughs> like, like, have a novel. But there's something that's really in the book about this that I'd like to bring out, which is Robert Goo, the main character, the protagonist. What was he before he was resurrected from Alzheimer's, before he was brought back to being young? What was he professionally? Poet. He was a poet. A poet? A professor who was a poet. Okay. And when he was resurrected, Alzheimer was banished and he was able... The poetry flair wasn't quite there anymore. He sort of lost that ability. So what did he do? How does he spend his time in a lot of the novel? Learning how to wear to make up for the his. Yeah, but something more blunt than that, more basic than that. Learning how to wear is that's sort of the next part of it. But where does he physically go and books and the library, which is where he runs it. Before the library. Before there's books in the basement. He just reads. He spends a lot of his time reading. But where does he go and interact with Juan? School. He goes to school. He goes back to high school, of all things. Professor Gu goes back to high school. He goes through retraining. And how does he get retrained? What does he become good at afterwards? And what is his job he gets at the end of the novel? Programming. He becomes a, a damn programmer, of all things. Meaning, these intuitive skills for him, the art of poetry, how more intuitive can you get?
combining wordcraft with intuition, intuitive feelings of what has to go into a poem, abandoning entirely and going full-scale into the technology stuff where he becomes an employee of a company because of his computing skills. In particular, the computing skills for getting rid of the time lag between things that are far away communicating over the internet. And you've all had that problem when you're dealing with a Skype conversation here in the United States with someone in South Africa and there's a lag or something like that. Well, how do you get rid of that lag? That's what he was focusing on how to do. I mean, you can't get any farther away from poetry than that, folks. So, the, the idea is that when he learned something in his first life that was intuitive and had to readjust, he didn't go in for the intuitive stuff. The stuff he relearned in high school when he had to go back to high school, was something to make him relevant, which means the society had changed. And when the society changed, it didn't leave any options open for poetry. You had to become a geek. You had to become a master of the technology stuff. Imagine a wave. You're surfing, and a wave crashes on you. You've got to sink or swim. You've got to go along with the wave. You can't fight the wave. So this whole technology thing, as it's portrayed in the book, is not just, there's, see, the tension that Max raised is that there's an individual tension. Why don't you get the enhancement? Why don't you rely on the enhancement? You'll do better in school. I'll get a better grade. You get the idea? On an individual level. But if you look at the wide-angle view for Robert Goo in his whole life, it was survival. He had to find a place for himself in order to survive, in order to do something, in order to go to the next step. And he had to flow with the wave, and the wave had caught him, and the wave is a technological thing. So the message that Werner Vinge is saying, Vinge is saying, is that this technological singularity is, un, is, is not avoidable. It's going to happen, and you can't really fight it. Even Robert Gould, the poet, had to surrender to it. Do you get the idea? Remember, Werner Vinge... Moore's law, more transistors, is going to happen. The number of transistors doubles every two years. Okay, and even when it starts slowing down, they're talking about it doubling over three years. I mean, like, big deal, who cares, two years, three years. It's still doubling the number of transistors. So you're talking about that technological singularity is becoming, according to Vertovinji, it's impossible to avoid even on the individual level. So Max, what you're talking about relates, it, it almost says, it's almost painting a picture that one is impotent to avoid it. One is powerless to avoid it. Even the poet got swept into it. The technological singularity, not, it, com it combines, it increases the potential of what can be done. Individually, there's this pressure to Use it, otherwise you're going to get worse grades. But then there's a survival issue. How do you get to pay your bills? How are you going to live? You collapse with the with the onrushing wave. You get carried along with it. Technological things, the capabilities technologically increase. The technological singularity is that the whole society goes with it. If the technology just increased, but the society just dissed it, dismissed it, it just, you know, bounced, 
what effect would the technology have? Nothing. The technological singularity that Werner Vinge is so famous for is because the technology increases at the same time that the society, in a mandatory way, adapts to it, embraces it, captures it, bonds with it, and becomes it. The wearing becomes indistinguishable from what you are. I wish you had all seen Battlestar Galactica, the series, because in a sense he's sort of saying the human future is more to be like Cylons than intuitive humans. Where Cylons created the reality that was around them. No matter what they were walking through, they saw what they wanted to see. <laughs> they decorated the walls the way they wanted it. doesn't matter if they could be walking through a slum. doesn't matter. As far as they're concerned, they're in the palace. That's all they see. What does it matter if you're in a slum or if you're in a palace, if the only thing you see is a palace? So this is the type of thing we're, we're really talking about. Did anyone have another passage you wanted to go? Go ahead, Eleni. Okay, so this is um, page 127. 127. It's when Sharif is talking to the elder cabal in the on the sixth floor of the library. All right. Um, and they're talking about Huertas and his plan to digitize all the, to shred and digitize all the books in the library. All right. Um, Where are you going to start reading? He asks, aren't you taking this whole thing in the wrong way? I mean, the librarium project will open up all past literature to everyone. Wait a second, where are you on? You're on 127? Yeah. On wh where are you starting? It's like in the first paragraph, at the end of the first paragraph. Okay. Um, and faster than any other project could do it. What is wrong with that? This last was met with total silence. Winston Blount smiled thinly. I don't suppose you've seen our website? Ah, uh, not as yet. He paused and his eyes seemed to be looking far away. Okay, I see what you're saying. He smiled. I suppose I should be on your side. What you want will keep my 411 job safe. See here, I love the old poets, but old-time literature is so hard to get at. If your interest is in post-2000 topics, critical sources are everywhere, and research gets results. But for the rest, you have to search through that. Sharif waved at the orderly ranks of books, the stacks that fill the library's sixth floor. It can take days to gain even trivial insights. And then I'm skipping down to... It's on the next page. Um, where Robert is thinking about and replying to Sharif's, um, he's, Sharif's kind of defending the idea. This is insanity, Sharif. Apparently, the librarian project is someone's idea for photographing and then digitizing the library. But suddenly he was remembering things from his last years at Stanford. Didn't Google already do that? That's true, said Rivera. In fact, that was our first argument and perhaps still the best one. But Huertas is a great salesman and he does have arguments in his favor. So I found um, an article that talks about how durable information monopolies are on the internet. And it's about, um, kind of, it's kind of loosely about Google, but it also talks about Facebook and other um, websites that kind of, like Amazon that kind of have a monopoly on their categories. And um, it, this part says, it was we collectively who made Google and Facebook dominant. The biggest sites were faster, better, and easier to use than their competitors, and the benefits only grew as more users signed on. So what I'm thinking about is that um, is not whether or not monopolies are a part of what we're dealing with with technology, because they are. 
and it's a reality, like we've said before, it's a reality of our lives now, and it's an inevitable reality as technology continues to progress. Um, but the argument is going to be not that monopolies are necessarily bad, because in a, in a way, the users create the monopolies almost on purpose because of the accessibility of the monopolies that control the information. So it's kind of like that, like, yeah, technically you're right, there's lots of reasons not to shred the books and not to let this guy have a monopoly, but if you think about it, it makes everything so much easier. So Sharif is part of the side of the argument where choosing the more accessible option creates the monopoly hmm. that we then end up fighting against. So to stop fighting something that's inevitable and just accept that monopolies are inherently a part of technology. Interesting. So how are you arguing that? I'm arguing that we should stop worrying so much about whether Google is the only search engine. Like there's a reason that Google is the only search, is the main search engine. There's a reason people don't use Bing as much or Yahoo as much, and it's because Google is the best search engine. And the more people who use the Google search engine, the better it gets because they can use the information, the feedback of millions of millions of people to better the website. So the That's monopoly is not a bad so, thing. It's increasing the efficiency of these websites. What I like about this argument that you're making is it goes against sort of the ingrained American way of thinking that um, free market free market and competition is good. So you're actually making an argument that people would object to. So if you if you continue along that, that's like Jonathan Swift. Uh, yeah. Uh, what was the name of that? Uh, modest Proposal. The yeah, Modest Proposal about eating, eating children. So, I mean, <laughs> you make a proposal that goes against what people are thinking, and, and that's, that's, a, that's a good thing to try. Go ahead. I was going to say I actually disagree. I don't think necessarily the reason that more people use Google is because it's better, but it could be because it's more well-known. And as new companies start up, they try and be better than Google. Um, and it's going to take time for them to get there and time for them to become as well-known. But just because they're not as well-known and not as well-used does not mean that they're not as good. Um, so I think it's kind of it kind of shows our tendency to go towards famous brand, na or brand names um, as opposed to trying out other things which might actually be better. All right. My only argument against that is that like my sister-in-law works for Yahoo and um, she worked for Google before and one of the things that like I don't know if anyone remembers Google like five years ago it's definitely different now is that the more people who use websites like that, and Facebook, the reason why Facebook has updates all the time, is because they're getting feedback from users, and that's why the websites are changing. So, like, I think people are, I think what you, that is a valid argument that probably a good percentage of the number of people who use Yahoo, uh, Google over, like, Yahoo or Bing use it because they know Google better. But I think part of it is also that it's its, its own momentum. It carries its own momentum because the more people who use it, it becomes more efficient, then more people want to use it, and then it becomes more efficient. It's just a cycle. Hmm. So it like, exists within, it, within its own little thing. No, that's okay. That's okay. Go ahead. Check. Um, I'm going to argue for the norm that um, monopolies are inherently a bad thing. Um, like History has shown that whenever a business has a monopoly, it's a bad thing. They like screw their customers. Um, and I'm going to use it, um, Amazon today as an example. 
Amazon's pretty much like the only online shipping thing that anyone uses. I mean, there's like different sources in like China and things like that. But Amazon is the strongest online shipping service in America. And when you're the only strong, when you're pretty much the shipping service, you can do whatever you want. Um, I'm not, I'm, I, okay, so this is, that's kind of extreme. But my example is being Amazon Prime increased recently from $79 to $99. And the only thing that you can do is take it. You can't really like do anything else. You can just not buy or buy. Or just not get Prime and go for and go for uh, free shipping and just wait a little yeah. while longer. Well, that's true, but like, uh, what's to stop them from like not? What's to stop them from like keep? Sorry, what's to stop them from continuing their profits? Just buy from the companies directly on their websites. Because all the companies have like websites they're already buy from. But the convenience is that you can get multiple things from multiple companies in one purchase or in one order. And then you pay for shipping once and it all comes at once. Yeah. And you don't have to type in your credit card information five you times. That's, that's, that's a, a convenience mon- argument then. Right. It's not a monopoly though. You can't say it's a monopoly. That's what I'm saying. It's like the convenience is true, but it's, you can't say it's a monopoly. Well, it's a monopoly on the market of, of its own, but it... I feel like Amazon kind of created its own market. I wasn't thinking, like, when I was doing this argument, first of all, I don't think that there should be a monopoly of, like, any kind, but this kind specifically, I just thought that the argument, like, I was taught to always write against the argument that you would normally make because you have to think harder about your argument. But um, I think, for me, that when I was writing, when I was thinking about this, about what I would write, I was thinking more about websites like Google, where... It's not necessarily a product that you're buying from them. It's a service that they're giving to you. So websites like Google, I guess Facebook is kind of that way. Twitter is kind of that way where it's less like they can't, it's kind of difficult to think of a way for Google to screw their customers over in terms of like just providing the information that you look for unless they're hiding stuff. I mean, they are, they do because whoever pays them more, they'll put their results higher up. So if you want your company's name to show up at the top of a list when someone searches something, you give Google money and they put your name at the top. Yeah, but that doesn't keep you from finding the other stuff if you continue to look. That just puts them first, and that's the same as like. (coughs) Russell is not always based on money. There is an entire there's an entire field for web search optimization. So it's yeah, it's not what you give Google to put your it's not always what you give Google to put your name at the top. It's also how you design your website. Yeah, like how many times you use a certain word at once on your web page yeah. can make it come up faster. But the argument still is that there seems to be a natural tendency for certain companies to outperform others in a masterful way. And I think that has less to do with, like my argument is that that has less to do with the nature of a monopoly and the nature of the companies and more to do with our nature as consumers of technology. Yeah, so it's easier to go to Google if right. they've mastered how to do it and it's easier to go to Amazon. And like it doesn't, like mastered. the question of why it's easier is not like what I'm exploring. It's not just easier, it's a reliability factor, yeah. it's a trust factor. You Meaning know that it works. For some people who make products, if they can sell them on Amazon, you don't have to try to convince the customer that you're not cheating their credit cards. You're not, you know, that there's some sort of reliability to it. So the monopoly does give that aura of of um, trustworthiness to it in a, in an odd sense until people become really royally ticked. Now remember that they used to have monopoly on cable companies, and people become so ticked with how 
the quality was, it opened it up for competitors. So if the quality of these monopolies goes down, like if, if Amazon started to misprocess orders, not take returns, things like that, people became ticked off, then there was a possibility that... But as long as they maintain a customer base, it's very hard for another company to come in for that convenience factor. So I like the idea of being in favor of the monopoly. I haven't heard that for a long while, but go ahead. No, I think you concluded that of how powerful it is. Is like, say you buy, so you download... Like you have Safari on your computer, you have uh, uh, Internet Explorer, you just type in a word and it automatically goes to Google. Or on your iPhone, you click search, it doesn't ask which search engine you use, it just goes straight to Google. That's like the default one. And like Apple's a company that dislikes Google and still goes straight to that. It just shows like the power of the market yeah. Google has. Yeah, yeah. Now, if you think about it in terms of the novel, it's actually quite powerful because. Libraries are scattered all over the place. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where you literally had to get into the car or an airplane and go to a particular library that had certain content. And you're talking you thousands of miles of travel. Depending, depending on your field of study, you still have to do that. Depending on your field of study. And so with the digitalization of everything, you literally wouldn't have to go anywhere, right, in your own That's home. That's Sharif's argument. It's the same argument. Like, Sharif is arguing, like, yeah okay, they're shredding books and it makes you sad because you like books and that's fine, but to a certain extent, I don't understand why you're arguing against this when it could be accessible to everyone whenever they needed it. And what if it's accessible to numerous companies that have the digital version? The real question is, well, then will the digitalization actually happen if there's, other, if there's no particular monopoly component to it that would make a company profitable by having all of that? Probably not. I think they would end up specializing. Specializing is a possible way. Go ahead. Or working together because if you have, say, say you have a thousand books and you have ten companies and you tell them, okay, each one of you has to download a certain number of books then a user is going to have to go and go to the first one, see if they have the book. Uh, they don't, then they have to go to the other one, and you'll end up having to, you know, search through all the different ones to find the book, when it would be much easier to have a single solitary database, if you will, like JSTOR, for that matter, hmm. that has all the books in it. You know, the issue of monopolization is interesting because even in situations where it did form, if they're left to their own devices, they often don't last very long. For example, Microsoft Windows Operating System and Microsoft Office were packed together. And there was a movement for a while to split that, to split Microsoft by cutting it in half, to take the Microsoft Office, put that into another company, and to take the Microsoft Operating System and put it into a different company. That was the time when Apple wasn't doing so well and Microsoft was dominating everything and it seemed like there was no possibility. That was during the Clinton and Al Gore administrations. And look at it now. These laptops are becoming a niche market. Some, some people have said, some surveys have found out this, that use of desktops and laptops is down to like 35% of the entire PC and the entire computing market. That people are Using lap, are uh, using tablets and phones for these things, and that's a, a whopping majority of everything. In which case, you're using Android or uh, Apple OS, and you know, and Microsoft is 
is in a situation of not being in a monopoly anymore. Yet there wasn't any intervention to split Microsoft. Once George Bush became president, that whole Microsoft split, Microsoft in half thing died. And, you know, no one ever brings it up anymore because there are other players on the market now. And nothing was done to stop rate the monopoly. So it's interesting that monopolies, you might want to think about this in terms of your essay. People like monopolies in some sense, but the monopolies actually have a free reign. Now, the difference is when they are given some type of governmental embrace so that the customers really can't change, and it also locks in the technology in some way. For example, back in the old, old, old days, it goes way before you guys, there was a phone company called AT&T, which still exists, but it's not the phone company that you know. It was basically, they were involved in long-distance communication. So when you made a long-distance phone call, I make a lot of long-distance phone calls to Africa, for example. They typically cost $2 each for a phone, for a, get a phone card and make a phone call. Those same $2 phone calls uh, were at least $100, not many years ago. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember calling Israel for 100 bucks, and I don't think I spent more than couple minutes, <laughs> a few minutes. I mean, it was, now it's like $2 to do these things. So these monopolies run into their own wall. They run into their own pressure. Hey, look, we only have a few minutes, so I would like to read a passage, okay? Um, but I like that. Eleni, I like that idea that you were bringing up. Um, I'd like to turn you to page, I'm going to go to some place sort of farther near the end of the, of the book. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the one that's on page 259. It's a little longer, but this is where the two sides are competing in the big battle to control what's going to happen to the library. Should they shred the books or not? And the dangerous knowledge wanted the books, and the scoochies wanted to preserve the books in physical form. You start talking. Okay. Talk more. Talk sure, more. Sure. Okay. All right. So on page 259, dangerous knowledge continued its merry dance through the spider troops. Remember, there's this huge demonstration that was being orchestrated by the rabbit, the artificial intelligence, and these two groups are coming out. It was a big distraction so that the real hijinks could be going on inside the library. So dangerous, dangerous knowledge continued its merry dance through the spider troops. Mocking the Suchi's surprise, it shouted, indignant! Be ye now, uh, we hungling. Could it be ye cheated with too little imagination? What ye brought is <coughs> old and slow, well matched to the petty concept of your imagery. Now what they're doing is talking about each other's competing artificial realities that they're projecting. The art behind dangerous knowledge was astoundingly good without precursors, but whoever was pulling the strings was even more impressive. Certainly a world-class professional actor. For a moment, the Suchi ranks wavered and their mob of virtual supporters began to melt away, meaning they had real physical supporters in the riot, but they also had virtual people there as well who were actually in New York or some other place. In the view from above, Hun saw still more Hasekians piling up around, above, around the other sides of the library. If the balance shifted too far, the Suchi cause would end in humiliation and defeat. 
Then Sheila Hansen's voice came loud on the public venue, audible across the entire participating world. Look, the greater Suchi amount. Now, behind Hun, uh, one of the forklift mechs stirred to life. So you have a giant forklift, a robotic type of forklift that normally is used for construction purposes, suddenly started to move, okay? Ah, that was just the thing Hun should have thought to do. Thank goodness Sheila was on the ball. The forklift stepped forward as delicately as delicately as could as could be imagined for a machine that was 12 feet tall with a center of gravity that was now over six feet up. It certainly wasn't running autonomously, but he hadn't <coughs> thought Sheila could drive it this well. Its foot platters descended slowly, giving humans and chirps and salsipweds plenty of time to clear out of the way. It was impressive but it was just a forklift. Then Hoon realized he was still watching with his driver's view. Meshing with the belief circle view it was, Sheila had morphed the blue ionoped into something even more spectacular than dangerous knowledge. Now it was the greater Suchi amount, the most popular of the Suchi critters. These are all artificial robotic type little things. In its short career, the great Suchi had been the subject of refurbishment, spin-offs, uh, spin-ups, mergers, and attempted governmental takeovers. It was the maximum hero to millions of school children across the poorest lands of Africa and South, Amer and South Africa, the champion of little people improving their place in the world. And this vision of it tonight topped everything in sight. So it was something that was in the folklore. Think of Barney, the dinosaur Barney, somehow becoming part of the demonstration some type of thing that people had been associated with early on. What's more, this vision tonight had four tons of haptic truth clunking along inside. Haptic truth, that means connections with the hands and so on like that, connecting to make the, this forklift actually move around and walk. The greater Suchi amount reached the edge of the Suchi lines and advanced into spidery bot territory. Now it moved fast, as fast as the stabilizers and motors could carry it. And then people say, you know, who's driving the thing? Now, let me skip down a little bit. Okay. Uh, I'm going to skip down to the bottom of this page on page 260, where Sheila, who is one of the orchestrators of all this stuff, Sheila was at the other end of the front. It looked like she was trying to get the robots to advance into the knights and librarians. On Tim's end... The greater Scoochamout had already accomplished some of that by dancing toward the edge of the real human players. Hansen then sent a, a text message to Hoon saying, Not to worry, management is happy. Take a look at the publicity. Okay, look, we have one minute left. If you're to look at this, a huge element in these huge battles with these virtual players, robots... You know, you have these forklifts that suddenly come to life. And then finally, at the very end, the earthquake stabilizers of the building, the library building itself, are used by the computer to literally make part of the library building walk. Do you remember that? This talks about symbolism, meaning the battles were being fought not by real people shooting each other, the battles in this book, which was a huge battle, a huge riot, was being fought on the level of views, clicks, number of people looking at your at your Facebook page and liking it. 
the number of people liking your YouTube video. The battle was being fought on the level of public reception to it. All being done through the Internet. And they were looking at the publicity. They were looking at the number of people that were connecting into the virtual world. That's where the real battles were being fought. And who controlled the library was really who controlled public attention. And the idea of controlling public attention was fundamentally connected to symbolism. So what I want to bring to your attention is Werner Vinge actually talks about something really important in these passages. The idea of symbolism. You don't change any major thing in society without a Camelot, without a symbol. So when you looked at John Kennedy and he did what he did, charismatically, intuitively, and you look at Ronald Reagan, how he sort of did the same thing, but through learning how to do it, what they both created was a symbol, a symbol that people were able to project themselves onto, the world that they were... They project, they essentially created a magic that the people mapped themselves onto, became identified with. Revolutions, technological revolutions, other types of revolutions, Werner Vinge is really telling us, are inner projections of the masses just inner projections of the masses. Very interesting. I wish we could actually talk about it, but we've run out of time. But I did want to raise some of these sort of more sort of potent points. There's a number of them in the back that we missed. A whole bunch of things in this. But I'll, hopefully you'll raise some of these in your papers, which you are going to hand in when? Monday. On Monday. And we are reading the next book, uh, which is... Pardon me? I believe it's Stephenson's uh, Snow Crash. Is that correct? Sounds right. Pardon me? Stephenson's Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash, and that is one of the best novels you will ever read.